Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Douglas and Sarah Allison Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website. For our in-house guests, we ask that last courtesy to see if our mobile devices have been silenced. And, of course, for those watching online, you're welcome to send questions or comments for our guest at any time, simply emailing speaker, how convenient, at speaker at heritage.org. Welcoming our special guest and introducing our program, it is my pleasure to announce and welcome our president, Kay Coles-James. Please join me in welcoming her. Welcome. I'm sorry that we were a little delayed, but um, the speaker was uh, taping a Hannity show, as and he's all over the media, as you know, and uh, so we are delighted to wait as long as we need to for whatever it is that he is going to share with us today. Uh, he doesn't need an introduction, not to this audience at all. He's a leader who's known and loved uh, in this building and all across America. He's deeply respected across across the globe thanks to his expertise in world history, military issues, international affairs, and so much more. But here at Heritage, Speaker Gingrich is known most as a dear friend. Some of you may know this, but uh, some of you may not. He was a regular participant in our brown bag lunch series beginning in 1979, when he was newly elected member of Congress. And you can thank uh, Lee Edwards for digging up that little factoid for me. And uh, after leading the historic Republican Revolution of 1994, where do you imagine Nuke went to give his first public address as speaker? That's right, right here at the Heritage Foundation. We've been graced by his presence so many times in the intervening years and have been enriched by the many talks he's given here. And so this isn't a welcome to you, Mr. Speaker, as much as it is a welcome back. But today is particularly special because uh, Newt will be speaking about his forthcoming book, Trump America, The Truth About Our Nation's Great Comeback. I want you all to see this right here. I have my own personally signed copy. <laughs> and uh, you will have the opportunity to have that as well at the end of our time here. I don't mean to steal your thunder, Mr. Speaker, but I do want to share just one quote from your book. There can be no compromise in the battle between Trump's America and the anti-Trump coalition 
One side will win and the other side will lose. I know I speak for all of us here today when I say the odds of victory are immeasurably greater thanks to the words and the wisdom you're about to share with us at this pivotal moment in the history and the time of our country. Mr. Speaker, dear friend, welcome home. good to be back here and I must point out that she, Kay, had to tell you about my early experiences. Now, Ed Fulner could have gotten up and told you personally about my early experiences here, but Kay was in Girl Scouts at that time and therefore <laughs> was not part of this. Uh, but I have had a very long, very close relationship with Heritage. Uh, Heritage has played an enormous role in the development of conservative ideas and conservative governance, and so it's always, to me, a natural place to come to talk about ideas. I, I do want to share one little thing about how my life has changed. Uh, as some of you know, my wife, Callista, is the ambassador to the Vatican, and I sort of liked, uh, they saved my seat with a sign which says, Speaker Gingrich, uh, and that would not normally have mattered to me. That's a title I've had for a while, uh, but... In recently, I was at a dinner party at, uh, in Rome, and there was a little sign for Ambassador Gingrich. And then when I went to find my sign, it said Consort Gingrich. <laughs> and I thought I'd gone from Dr. Gingrich to Professor Gingrich to Congressman Gingrich to Speaker Gingrich to now Consort Gingrich. So I just want to I want to thank you for not listing me as consort Gingrich here at Heritage. But I have a hunch next time I come, that'll show up. Uh, let me uh, share with you briefly. And by the way, there is something particularly appropriate, I think, and, and fortuitous about being here today because there's a Reuters poll that came out this morning that shows the Republicans now ahead in the generic ballot, uh, which is such a huge change. Uh, I mean, this campaign is a long way from being over, but I do two free newsletters a week at Gingrich Productions, and I uh, recently wrote one in which I pointed out that everybody who was wrong throughout the first half of, of 2016 about who would win the Republican nomination, and then was wrong throughout the fall of 2016 uh, about who would win the presidency, is now on TV explaining to you why the Republicans will lose the House. Uh, and I would just say to you, any person who believes they can tell you accurately today that the Republicans will lose the House is, is very foolish. Uh, this is a real campaign involving real choices. One of the reasons I wrote Trump's America is that it struck me that we needed to have a definition of what this fight was about. Uh, last year, and, and I will always be grateful, uh, because I called... Uh, in uh, late November, early December, and said, you know, I had an opportunity to write a book called Understanding Trump. Uh, and I give my good friend Randy Evans credit for this because he called one day and said to Cliston and me, you have to write Understanding Trump. And we said, we're tired, we don't want to write. He said, no, no, trust me, a book that's entitled Understanding Trump will be really well received. And finally, after he beat, browbeat us for a while, we said, okay. 
And then I had the problem of producing a book called Understanding Trump. So I called Ed and said, do you think Heritage would be interested in a series of speeches or lectures that tried to explain Trump? Well, if you remember in December, January, February of that period, as the president was being sworn in, there was a fairly high value in trying to explain Trump uh, to a country whose elites had all totally just checked out. Uh, I've, I've told everybody, in fact, when I just taped Hannity Radio a while ago, he was reminding the audience that I had said recently that at 8 o'clock on election night, the elites all knew that Hillary Clinton was going to be elected. I mean, there was zero doubt at 8 o'clock on election night. And at 10 o'clock on election night, the elites were all having to confront that Donald J. Trump had been elected. And that that two-hour period involves such deep psychological trauma <laughs> that they have never recovered from what was, in effect, a psychotic experience. Uh, and that that really explains the bitterness and the hostility and the anger that you see in reporters and you see in consultants, you see in the anti-Trump Republicans who are all walking around. It's, it's, a, it's a variation on PTSD. And they're, they're just all walking around shell-shocked and many of them may never recover. I mean, they, they may, in fact, uh, go into their retirement years in Canada uh, still <laughs> confused about this. And I did notice that actually immigration to Canada is up uh, by some small number. Now, but what occurred to me, uh, and, and uh, with Heritage's help, I think we outlined a pretty convincing case, and it did become the number one New York Times bestseller last year. And so as I was talking through you know, one of the things I can tell you is I've, I've written like 37 or 38 books. Um, publishers love books that sell a lot. I mean, if, if you want affection in the publishing business, sell a lot. Uh, you learn how deep the affection is if your next book doesn't sell a lot, but it's, it was interesting. So they, of course, came back and said, so what do you want to do? And we thought about it for several months, and the reason I wanted to write Trump's America is with all due respect to the president, who is a remarkable figure and is changing history uh, and has shown a level of, of, of calm, steady perseverance uh, under circumstances that normal people would have buckled and collapsed under, uh, this is only half the story of Trump. This is also the story of America. There is an enormous well of American patriotism, American conservatism, American common sense, that has been building up and building up and building up. And Trump came along to articulate and personify what people wanted. So it's this coming together of Trump and Trump's America that has made so big a difference. And you can see it beginning to work. I mean, he is, and I've worked with a lot of presidents over the years, and Reagan was remarkable in his own right. But I would say that Trump is in some ways the most unique person I've ever worked with. Uh, that he is uh, tactically at times uh, not very well organized, on occasion does things I think I can't figure out why he's doing them. <clears throat> said to him one time, 10% less Trump would be 100% more effective. Uh, and he sort of looked back and he said, what are you talking about? Are you talking about my tweets? And I said, I like 80% of them. He said, no, no, it's got to be 95. It can't be 80. <laughs> and, we, and he wants to negotiate over what percent of his tweets I like. <laughs> And I'm thinking, this is crazy. But, but behind that tactical fluidity is enormous strategic steadiness. 
If you look at how disciplined they've been and who they're nominating to federal judgeships, it is an astonishing performance. And if you look at their toughness in saying to states that have two Democratic senators, not our problem. We're not, we're not paying attention to Senate rules that give you a veto. And they're just running over them. And, and the judgeships actually are the, I mean, the, the, the number one thing that Mitch McConnell can claim that is truly remarkable is the way in which they have driven through judgeship after judgeship with a very narrow majority. And it's just been a sheer act of will. But they've had a, Don McGahn and the team working for the president and, and Leonard Leo at the Federalist Society have had a very disciplined approach. Second, you look at deregulation. I mean, the news media is over here jumping up and down about Stormy Daniel or whatever the next opportunity to avoid conscious thought is. And <laughs> over here, you have the most successful deregulation in American history. Just calmly, steadily grinding away, taking power out of Washington, taking power away from bureaucrats. It's a remarkable achievement. The president said for a year and a half as a candidate and then as the president that the Iranian deal was a bad deal. Imagine the shock among Europeans when it turned out that the term bad deal meant bad deal. <laughs> and he actually, unlike the politicians they're used to dealing with, he actually acted on what he said he believed. And by the way, he gave them months to come to him with a better opportunity, and they couldn't get their act together. He said, well, you know, if you could have given me a way to get to a better deal, I'd have done it, but since you didn't, I'm killing it. And if you saw Pompeo's speech yesterday, I mean, the Secretary of State, in a calm, steady way, outlined a, a warning to the Iranians that is really pretty chilling and pretty tough, and to the Europeans. I mean, basically what he's saying to the Europeans is, you want to deal with uh, Iran? Fine. They do. They have a $25 billion economy for imports. You, send, you sell us $720 billion. But if you'd like to give up the $720 billion, we'll find substitutes. It's okay. We're not offended. But you're not going to do both. And interestingly, and I, I had never seen it on this scale, but Steve Mnuchin at Treasury becomes one of the leading operating figures in our national security policy because of the effectiveness Treasury has in using the banking system to squeeze down on these guys. They're squeezing the Russian oligarchs. They're squeezing the Iranians. They're squeezing North Korea. And it's working. In fact, I would argue that if you want one view of thinking about Trump, would be to read a good biography of Palmerston, who was the British prime minister in the middle of the 19th century, who was very clear who he represented. He represented Great Britain. And he did things that were very decisively British. And if that made his potential allies uncomfortable, that was their problem, not his problem. Trump had pledged, and this is something I happen to feel personally about because I was one of the co-authors of the bill, Trump had pledged that he would move the embassy to Jerusalem. I think every presidential candidate starting in 2000 had pledged that they would move the embassy to Jerusalem. The great shock, of course, was that when Trump said, I'll move the embassy to Jerusalem, what he actually meant was, I'll move the embassy to Jerusalem. <laughs> now, you can imagine in the academic classes of America where everything is deconstructed, and I'll move the embassy to Jerusalem actually is supposed to mean we will have a long and meaningful discussion at the end of which nothing will happen, but you'll know how sincerely I wanted to do something positive. If only it wouldn't have been too hard. <laughs> and instead they're faced with a guy who actually kept his word. 
And so I think you, you, you see this steady, relentless pursuit. He understands better than anybody that one thing will decide his reelection more than anything else, and that's the state of the economy. And Gallup reported yesterday the highest percentage of Americans who believe you can get a good job in the history of asking that question. It was now, at, I think, 64 or 65% of the country believes it's possible to get a good job. Under Obama, about 65% thought it was possible to get food stamps. <laughs> That's how big the difference is in the outlook. That's how fundamentally different. We have the lowest unemployment rate among African Americans in history, and it's beginning to sink in. I mean, when Kanye West did something as bold as to wear a Make America Great Again hat and speak inappropriately in a positive way about the president, uh, his approval, Trump's approval among African Americans doubled from 11 to 22%, literally overnight, based on one interview. Because all of a sudden, people, were, people who don't watch Fox News, don't read National Review, weren't, you know, suddenly said, oh, let me think about this. My prediction is that we, you will probably see Republican candidates this fall get the highest percentage of African American vote uh, since Eisenhower. And that, that you see, and the reason is practical. You have a president who thinks it's good to go to work. You have a president who wants your family to have more money. Uh, there's a real possibility that the Republicans will end up being able to campaign in a very powerful way as the party that wants you to have a better life and allow you to define what better life is, which is what freedom's all about. So what struck me was you, had, you do have these powerful underlying surges. I happen to be a space nut. I, 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 you know, I, when I was young, uh, space was an exciting di dynamic thing. I used to read Missiles and Rockets magazine before it merged with Aviation Week. And I still remember the first landing on the moon. Well, you have in Trump and Pence two people who are really committed to dramatic changes. And I think we're going to get dramatic changes. I mean, one of my goals, and I'm trying to think through, how do we say to every eighth grader this fall when they go back to school, you in your lifetime will have the chance to be on the moon and to be on Mars. Now, this is not the NASA traditional, we're going to find four astronauts. It's going to be really elegant. You're going to think it's terrific on TV. Uh, and then 20 years from now, we'll do something else. This is we're going to colonize the solar system. We're going to open up a permanent base on the moon. We're going to build materials starting with, with uh, the, the, you can develop rocket fuel off the, what's on the moon, and we're going to go to Mars. And we're not going to go to Mars in little bitty tiny things with three or four people in claustrophobia. <laughs> you know, because what you're having, and, and by the way, there's a great book by a Washington Post reporter called The Space Barons. And, it is a, and this is why it's Trump's America, not just Trump. Because what you have somebody who's not necessarily pro-Trump, uh, Jeff Bezos, is personally spending a billion dollars a year building rockets. So all of you who shop at Amazon are indirectly helping the American space program. And he's wealthy enough, he can, he can basically right now spend a billion dollars a year for about two centuries. And no congressional oversight, no federal regulations, no red tape, no 700-man uh, NASA planning committee. He just hires engineers and says, build rockets. So they will presently, I think by 2020 or 21, they will have a heavy lift 
rocket called the John Glenn. That will lift 50 or 60 tons into space on a reusable rocket that will come back down, get reloaded, and go back up. They will be able to lift, per, per million dollars, they will be able to lift five times as much weight as the giant rocket that NASA is currently building that's a couple years behind schedule and a couple billion over budget. Elon Musk is doing the same thing. And, and this book called The Space Barons looks at Musk, looks at Bezos, looks at uh, Paul Allen, who has a totally different model, has just built the largest airplane ever built in order to carry rockets up to 50,000 feet and launch them. Uh, and looking at Richard Branson, who wants to literally run you know, Virgin Galactic so you can fly into space as a, as a tourist the same way you could fly to Europe on one of his airlines. This is a rate of change that's phenomenal. There, there are three students who just who graduated from the US University of Southern California who formed a company. They now use 3D printing to build rockets. And the rockets work. And there's a totally different world coming down the road. And Trump represents the willingness of an entrepreneur to cut through the red tape, cut through the bureaucracy. When he, <clears throat> I was very struck when he signed the uh, recreation of the, of the Space Council, which, which had operated under Reagan and Bush, uh, he said, it's very important to think big. And he stopped and he said, let me repeat this. It's very important to think big. And that's part of what makes him so different. Uh, you know, he is, he is trying to arouse a country it's not about the bureaucracy. It's not about politics. It's not about the White House staff and all this junk that occupies the Washington press corps. It's about literally having the ability to arouse an entire country to think big and to do big things. And part of what I want to get across to every eighth grader is, you know, you ought to learn math and you ought to do well in school because you have a shot at being, a, being a, an explorer and a pioneer and a colonizer in a way that you will find, you'll have no excuse for boredom. You'll have no reason to be taking opioids. You'll have no reason to be out here wasting your life. Because, and what Trump is doing in creating so many jobs is saying to people, <clears throat> don't tell me you can't find work. We're gonna create so many jobs. I, I was uh, visiting my mother-in-law in Wisconsin uh, for Mother's Day, and everywhere we drove, there were help wanted signs because the economy's turned. And now the job for us is to accelerate that turn, keep it going. Uh, I think have a huge breakthrough in vocational education because <clears throat> we're going to have more skilled jobs than we're going to have people who have the skills. And that means we can then offer people a ladder of growth and productivity where they can get the education, get the better job, increase their take-home pay, and show their own children that there is a path to having a dramatically better America. But it's the combined effort of everybody who entrepreneurially believes in a better future that is making this happen. The other area, frankly, is the huge fight between those on the left who would create a totalitarian system that would police what we're allowed to say, which you see on college campuses, uh, you see in the elite media, uh, and all the rest of us. And I think you're going to see a tremendous backlash against the academic left as, we, as, as people feel more comfortable and more secure standing up and speaking out. Uh, and I think you're going to see people who believe that patriotism is a good idea. They, they, you know, California actually had a bill introduced in the legislature that would have replaced President's Day with May Day in honor of socialist workers. Um, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, we are dealing with a left which is crazy. And we need to just be, you know, in the age of Venezuela, 
in the age of Cuba, you know, show, you know, show me a socialist system that's working. Uh, but we treat Bernie Sanders as though he's wonderful because he idiotically wanders around promising fantasies as though they could become real. And we ought to have the nerve to stand up and say that's just nonsense. You know, the British Health Service cannot deal with the crisis of taking care of people because the bureaucracy no longer functions and they don't have enough money because that's the nature of socialist systems is to gradually grow broke. And we ought to be very clear and be, we should be prepared to carry the argument for freedom against this kind of socialist, big government, tyrannical thinking and be clear what it means. And we're gonna have to because that literally what's happened is the left wing of the Democratic Party is now nominating overt socialists who belong to the Socialist Party of America. And we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be timid. We should go straight head to head and say, this is a great debate. If you think Venezuela ought to be the future, you have a party, it's called Democrat. And when you run out of food and you run out of medicine and you run out of opportunity, just understand, that's the price of socialism. <clears throat> we'll win that debate if we have the nerve to have that debate. This is the kind of stuff we have to do, and it's why I wrote Trump's America, because Trump's not gonna win this fight by himself. Trump's gonna win this fight if everybody who broadly agrees with him is willing to go out and fight, if we're willing to stand up and talk, if we're willing to write letters to the editor, if we're willing to go to the local coffee shop or the local bar or the local church get together and stand up for what we really believe in and have the conversation, not, not with hostility, but just by focusing on facts and by getting across the facts of where we are and what we need to do and the opportunity we have I think to create a dramatically better future. Uh, I, I do really believe that my grandchildren and their children have the potential to be in a much freer country. Than, which, which leads me to the thing I wanna close on because I think it's really important. Jiang Zemin, the Chinese president, is making an enormous mistake. And I'm, I'm working on a paper right now entitled Lenin Defeats Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping is the great leader who went on the southern tour at a time when the communist system was collapsing. And he said, if we don't find a way to open up the system, to create capitalism, to attract investment, to improve the lives of people, they're gonna throw us out because communism ain't working. And he came up with a simple phrase that he didn't care whether it was a black cat or a white cat as long as it caught the rat. There's actually a city in China that has a huge uh, bridge that has a black cat and a white cat guarding the bridge. It's a great symbol. And they went through a very wrenching period of opening up the society, and it worked. It turned out that free enterprise was enormously powerful at enriching the Chinese people. Jiang Zemin has decided that in fact Lenin was right and that what we need to do is create a totalitarian system in which every single person in China will have a score. And if, you're, if you have a bad score, if you have the wrong friends, if you're not paying your dues, uh, if you're thinking impure thoughts, you will not be able to get on a train or an airplane. Now, we've been here before. Nazi Germany could not organize its economy as effectively as Britain and the United States because Hitler was afraid people would rebel. Whereas a free society that has decided it's in a fight can mobilize at a scale that's unbelievable. 
the Soviet Union was going to use coercive police state systems to defeat us because the centralized command system could organize resources so much better than we could. And of course, what it led to was corruption, dishonesty. By the time of Gorbachev, when Chernobyl occurred, the only two sources of accurate information <coughs> excuse me, were the Swedish and Norwegian television stations. You could get no information from below because <coughs> everybody was in the habit of lying. The Soviets had invented a term. The state pretends to pay us and we pretend to work. And the whole system collapsed. And when, and when Gorbachev went to Perestroika and Glasnost, <coughs> one of his key elements was to eliminate corruption. They suddenly had thousands of railroad cars that couldn't be unloaded in uh, Ukraine because the system had always worked by bribing people. And when they came along and said, well, we can't bribe you anymore, they said, fine, then we're going to work the real hours. And if we work the real hours and we're going to follow every single rule and regulation, you're not going to get your, your railroad car unloaded. And the whole system began to grind to a halt because it had been so filled with corruption as a way of coping with the failure of the system. Uh, there was a joke about the man who went to buy a car. And he was told, well, if you put your money down now, we can deliver the car three years from today on Tuesday at 10 o'clock. He said, no, you can't do that. The plumber is coming that day. <laughs> and that's how, you know, so Xi Jinping is about to impose on the Chinese an anti-human system, <coughs> which will lead to corruption and dishonesty. <coughs> Excuse me. And as a result, I think you will see within a decade the grinding down of the Chinese system. And they will face a huge crisis of what they're going to do. Our job, having skirted past the massive corruption of the Clinton team, <coughs> having managed to survive the centralized bureaucratic left-wingism of, of Obama, our job is to reassert human freedom, to reassert entrepreneurship, to reassert the right of every American as endowed by their creator to pursue happiness, which they get to define, not the state. And then to say to the people of the world, look, there are two systems here. If you prefer being in a slave system controlled by a centralized authority, follow the Chinese. If you like the idea of being free, controlling your own life, being able to define your own future, then work with us. And that will be the great contest of the next 30 or 40 years. And the reason it's so important in 2018 and in 2020 that Trump's America wins is that we represent the forces of freedom against the forces of socialism and tyranny. We represent the forces of pro prosperity against the forces of poverty and welfare. And we represent the forces of opportunity against the forces of envy, hatred, and demagoguery. And therefore, we collectively have an obligation, I think, not just the president, but all of us who believe in these values have an obligation. And that's why I hope that Trump's America will reach out and convince people that this is a fight worth winning. Let me, for a few minutes, toss it open for questions.
Oh, thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Mitsuo Nakai, uh, the Heritage Foundation. Uh, regarding uh, North Korean nuclear crisis, uh, they're having a meeting today, but uh, about 15, 20 years ago, I was not optimistic. And today, I'm still not optimistic. Uh, according to nuclear experts, they said this denuclearization is a long and complicated process. That's number one. Number two, uh, military exercise is a, one of many sticking points. So can you comment on, on those? Sure. I think the president said it pretty well to the news media today. We would like to meet. We'd be happy to meet. Um, we're not going to lift any sanctions. We're not going to back off. We're not going to trust them. You know, Reagan had developed the, the old Russian phrase, trust but verify. We think that the North Koreans have taught you to distrust, not trust. Uh, we're not going to play the games they played with past presidents. Uh, and then Kim Jong-un gets to decide. And I think in a very real sense, as I mentioned earlier, I think that uh, Secretary Pompeo's speech about Iran uh, yesterday, which was a very tough speech. That he gave here. That he gave here. I apologize. <laughs> Let me put in a brief. Let me restate this. In the extraordinary important event at Heritage, where, where, that's right, where Secretary Pompeo spoke. So am I getting a little better? Okay. I mean, all these years, I still get coached publicly. I mean, it's a, <laughs> That's the difference, by the way, between Kay and, and, and Ed. Ed would have told me. Ed would have told me afterwards that was really stupid. You know, he was here. She just, she just intervenes publicly and gets it all worked up. Anyway, uh, I think in many ways that speech was aimed as much at the North Koreans as it was the Iranians. Okay, there's a lady over here. I thought, had, yes, he's bringing you a microphone. You're very on microphone. Creaky knees. Thank you, sir, for for coming. Very interesting. Um, when you were talking about the basis for this big issue between the Republican side and the Democratic side about the, the role of prosperity versus not prosperity, freedom versus non-freedom, underlying all of that is the, our Constitution that says all men are created equal. And that's based on the rule of law where Lady Justice is blindfolded. With all the issues that we know about of the malfeasance and corruption, et cetera, related to prior administrations. If the population sees that nothing is forthcoming to punish that wrongdoing, how do you see that playing out? Well, I don't think that'll happen. I mean, I think what's, what's and I'm actually have a, just put another plug in, I'm back over here tomorrow for a planning session with the folks who are working on legal issues here at Heritage. Um, <clears throat> because I think, I think this, one, I think this issue is so big and so complicated that nobody understands it. And I mean, I've been reading about it, working on it for years, and you, you try to piece together all the corruption of the Clinton Foundation and all the various things that, that Secretary Clinton did and all the things that her staff did 
and the way in which it was totally and deliberately mishandled by the FBI and the Justice Department. And then over here, you have all these things that have been done to the Trump team, and you try to put this all up on one wall to try to understand it. And it is just extraordinary. And I think it's going to take several more years to continue unraveling. But what's, what's significant is it is unraveling. And uh, having lived through Watergate and other examples, and, and compared, I mean, Watergate compared to this is like a teaspoon compared to the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, this, this is much bigger, much deeper, much more methodical corruption. It's, it's, there's just no comparison. And once these things start to break down, now, had Hillary won, we'd be in a different world. The corruption would have continued, and that's part of what's happened to these people. All of these people did things that were illegal on the premise that they were protected. That's why that, that 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock was so horrifying. You suddenly had people sitting, standing there going, I could go to jail. <laughs> now, I mean, I mean that, that's, that focuses you in ways you can't quite imagine. <coughs> and I believe that's part of why you see the hysteria from people like, like Brennan, the former CIA director, who clearly is in danger of going to jail. I mean, the more we learn about him, the clearer it is he was corrupt. Uh, Clapper, who I, I used to work with and know and liked, Clapper's role in all this stuff is, is crazy. I, I, I have no idea what he was thinking because it is so clearly wrong. And so I do think this will continue, and I think you will see people prosecuted. Yes, ma'am. Wait, you have to get a microphone. It's a key part of the heritage experience. <laughs> My name is Angela Beckles. Thank you, sir, for being here. Um, with all this going on, uh, the term cold civil war is being tossed around and, you know, with the demonization of our president and those that support him. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I think we clearly are in a very fundamental clash of both ideas and power structures. And I think we ought to be honest about that. <coughs> I keep telling people, <coughs> when you have these kind of breaks in a society, one side wins. I mean, this idea that there's going to be this mushy middle and we're all going to get together and sing Kumbaya and suddenly it's all going to be wonderful, that's just nonsense. I mean, you ought to respect your opponents. Your opponents are genuine, hardcore socialists. Uh, in, in the case of, the, of the, the vice chairman of the Democratic National Committee, he's a genuine anti-Semite. He's not, it's not that he's confused. It's not that it was a bad weekend. Uh, and you, and you, you look at the, the three members of the Socialist Party of America who won uh, primary elections in Western Pennsylvania as Democrats last week. They, they became part of the Socialist Party of America because they wanted to be part of the Socialist Party of America. Uh, you, and so at one level, we ought to respect the, uh, the integrity and the authenticity of people who we may think are crazy, but they're sincerely and authentically crazy. Well, they're not going to give that up easily, and that's going to lead to, a, I think, a very profound struggle. Come over this way. Yes, sir. I think you're going to be the last question because I sense the hook coming pretty quickly. <laughs> according, according to a study from the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, um, roughly 50% of American millennials would rather live in a socialist or communist um, country versus a democratic one. How do um, members of the conservative movement, especially conservative millennials that are in college, work to um, educate fellow classmates and people like that about um, push back on this idea that communism or socialism is is the key because 
I believe that too many of the professors are starting to to push some of these false narratives. Well, I personally think that sooner or later we're going to have a major conflict about who's allowed to teach and whether you can be certifiably insane and still be a, and still be a tenured professor. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, these are people. Look, we've gone through a cycle for whatever reason, probably going back to Marcuse in the '60s. We're in a cycle where if what I say has deeply emotional resonance, the fact that it has no meaning in the real world doesn't matter. So if I were to say to you that purple is the essence of truly loving people, and therefore you should always wear purple, and when you wear purple, I'll know you truly love people, and even if you're a scoundrel who steals from everyone, I'll know that your heart is pure because you're wearing purple. That gives you sort of the essence of the modern academic world. So they use words that are crazy. I mean, no reasonable person can look at Stalin's career or Mao's career or Lenin's career and come to believe that it worked. There's a famous story a friend of mine told me who was actually at the dinner that when Gorbachev, after the fall of the Soviet Union, came to Stanford for his faculty dinner, that one of the faculty members said to him, it is not that communism failed is that the Russians were unable to implement it effectively. And Gorbachev supposedly looked at the guy and said, you would have to be an American college professor to believe it. <laughs> and I think, frankly, I mean, one of the things I would love to see us do is set up a legal fund to encourage college students to sue their professors every time they teach things that are false. I mean, <laughs> just as... Just as I think, I think we should be in favor of a very dramatic increase in pay for public school teachers as long as they actually achieve something. And then say, look, you know, if you're, if you're actually going to deliver and, and your students are going to go to college, we ought to pay you a lot. And if you can't do that, you ought to go get a new job. Now, the teachers union, of course, will go crazy. But I don't think we should suffer the idea that we're going to allow tenured faculty members to continue to browbeat and lie to students about things that are clearly factually false. These are not philosophical things. Mao was a murderer. Stalin was a murderer. Lenin was a murderer. I mean, they set up systems of murder. Uh, the, the Cuban system put people in jail, impoverished them, and has them unable. I, I, we had a young lady who visited us two years ago who had actually come to the US on a grant from the Cuban government to study tourism in the hopes that she'd go home. And she said she looked around and realized she would average $30 a month in Cuba. And so she had this really rational thought. What if I stayed here? <laughs> and she didn't go back. I mean, she just said, it would be crazy for me to go back home, given what I can make every week here, and what I would make, you know, the number of years it would take me to make that. Well, but we need to be tough about going after these people. And we also need to encourage news media to coverage Venezuela. I mean, Venezuela is a perfect example of the natural result of kleptocratic socialism. It is Bernie Sanders' idea of the future. Thank you all very, very much. As you noted coming in, we have copies of the speaker's book available for purchase, and he will sign them out in the foyer as you have time.